Hey, do me a favor. If you are a, um, a teacher in our community, if you are involved in education, if you are a coach in our community, could I just have you guys stand for a minute? Yeah, don't be shy. Um, we, we want you to know as a church that we're praying. No, 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 don't you go anywhere. Just keep standing. There you go, back up. Um, we want you to know that we're praying for you guys. When we come here on a Sunday to worship, listen, we, we love our country and the separation of church and state that we can gather and worship. Would you agree? But, but some of you, if, you know, if you're in a public school specifically, you have that difficult task of standing on the other side of that line of how do I let my faith and the thing that's most important to me in my life resonate from me in a school when you're not supposed to bring religion into that environment. And for those of you who teach at Christian schools, you have that unique opportunity to try to keep Jesus fresh because a lot of those kids grow up in Christian families and you don't want the, their faith to become a routine. So we understand the kind of unique challenges you guys face. We want to support you with our prayers. We want to be thankful for you. And rather than just say we want to pray for you, is it okay if we just take a moment and pray for you? Would that be okay? Let's pray. Father, I thank you for... Um, the lives represented by those who are standing, and I understand the uh, difficulty of the task that you've called them to. And uh, for some of them, they uh, stand in this difficult spot of wanting to be a light for you, but having limitations on what they can say and communicate. And I would just pray that you would encourage them, that you would give them wisdom, that you would give them boldness where necessary. And I would pray that through the years, students would look back on their exposure to these teachers and say there was something different about those teachers and that you would use that for your kingdom and for the gospel. I pray for those that are teaching in more Christian contexts that you would um, give them fresh eyes and a bold faith to uh, not just allow kids to get into a routine, but to uh, stretch their faith and not just what they do, but um, their affections, who they love. I pray for um, all of those standing that uh, they would understand that uh, they are in a unique place to touch young lives and uh, that they would not uh, take that for granted. I pray that we would not as a church forget to lift them up in our prayers. It's in your name we pray, amen. Let me do this. Let me have you guys grab your Bible. We're starting a new series this morning. We're going to be in 1 Peter 2 this morning. There's going to be ushers coming down the rows. If you guys need a Bible, just raise your hand. We're going to be in a short passage of Scripture, 1 Peter 2, 9 through 12. Just raise your hand. If you need a Bible, the ushers will get that to you. How many of you remember last week, we didn't redirect our church, but we redefined through a statement that we hope that you could remember a new mission statement or a declarative statement. You guys remember that from last week? Please, somebody shake their head. Okay, how many of you could tell me what the statement was? Can anybody remember? Okay, what do you got? No, 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 close. You do not look at your notes. Okay, so yeah, absolutely. So, so who can help me? It was just three quick phrases. What was the first one? Okay, lift up. We got the first one. What's the next one? Hold high. What's the other one? Okay, not very difficult. Lift up, hold high, love well, and... We're trying to just get something in our minds that we can remember that people say, even not that important, but if people say, hey, what's Harvest about? We can describe it that way. But when we look at our own calling in our life, what does that look like? So we're starting a new series to build on that, and it's called A Church for Monday. We, we gather to worship on Sunday. What should the church look like the rest of the week? So if I could, could somebody help me with some really quick math this morning? How many hours in a week? Ah, it's the 11 o'clock crowd, okay. How many, how many hours in a week? 
Okay, it's 20 times 7, then 4. Very well done, very well done. Okay, so 168, okay? Let's assume you sleep 50 of those, right? So let's, that leaves what, 112? So here's the question. Out of the remaining 112 hours that you have, waking hours in your week, how many of those are given to church? Well, for some of you, a Sunday morning might just be an hour and a half. For others of you, you serve and then attend, so it might be three hours. Let's call it three. And let's say you're in small groups, so maybe that's another two to three hours. So somewhere like five, six hours a week. Is that kind of typical in our church? Well, as we've been thinking about what we're called to be as a church, we're thinking this five to six hours is just not enough time. We, we just... <laughs> We don't trust you with so many hours of free time on your own. So what we want to do is we want to kind of raise the bar for those who attend Harvest and your level of commitment. We would like you guys to commit to not just five or six hours a week, but let's kind of put a baseline out there of 20, okay? So we're going to roll out some new programs. I'm going to start a Bible study. It starts tonight. This is going to be Sunday nights from 7 to 9. Some of you think we preach too fast through books. We're going to go slower through this. It's going to be more verse by verse. We're going to start in, well, let's start in Psalm 119. And that'll, <laughs> verse by verse, that'll be three and a half years. So that kind of covers our curriculum for the next foreseeable season. Um, Monday nights is going to be mops. That's mothers of preschoolers and Mo's, mothers of high schoolers, and we'll just get a lot of that done on Monday. Um, I, I think it would be a good idea just as a church. Tell me how you guys feel about this. We'll start each day with just some gentle exercise and stretching. So we'll get together at 6.30 on Monday through Saturday mornings. That will be led by the campus pastor. So here that'll be Pastor Craig, okay, leading our calisthenics in the morning. Uh, Tuesday night will be Awana, it'll be cadets, it'll be little strikers and little kickers, okay? Um, Wednesday night, prayer and worship. Thursday night, potluck. Um, get your crock pots and pressure cookers going. Lots of meatballs, that's what I'm looking for, okay? <laughs> Friday night, maybe um, movie night. And, and just so you know, we've, we've got some bigger ideas too. We're looking at a piece of property that we want to buy in Nunica, and we're going through a development process. We're applying for permits for a subdivision slash compound. If any of you guys know somebody who's got some fence for sale, that would be awesome. And, and we're going to put that in out there because, like, who here wouldn't want to live in Nunica, right? Like, as good as it gets. And 20 hours, that's all we want, right? Doesn't sound so bad. It's funny, I grew up Baptist. In some ways, it was kind of like that. You know, as a kid, I went to the church's school, and we had mission conferences on the weekends and prayer meetings and Sunday night. And I mean, program after program after program. But, but please let me, hopefully you sense a little sarcasm. Our, our desire here is not to get the church to meet here more. Our desire is how are we the church when we go out there? And, and see, that's the question. If we're going to impact our community, if we're going to do what Christ has called us to do as his church, what's the church look like when we leave here on Sunday and we go into our routine and our responsibilities and our work in the different places where we go throughout the rest of the hours of the week? So that's what we're going to be exploring for the next few weeks. I think First Peter 2 gives us a good foundation to build on. So... 
Let me give you a little bit of background. I'll give you the big idea. The big idea is going to be this this morning. God views you very differently than you view yourself. God views you very differently than you view yourself. So here's some background. The, the author of 1 Peter is writing to a church. It says right at the beginning of 1 Peter 1 that they are dispersed. Uh, the church is going through a season of persecution. So the followers of Jesus Christ have had to scatter And I just spent all last fall teaching through Hebrews where I had to refer to, well, the author said this and the author said this and the author said this. But the good news in this book is we know who the author is. Who's the author of 1 Peter? You guys are good today. Um, You're on game. The 168 took you a while, but that was quick, all right? And um, so Peter is the author, and we know Peter. Like like we know his story through the Gospels. He was a, a fisherman who Jesus called as one of his disciples. He was kind of the leader of the disciples, one of the inner three. He is a illiterate man. Probably somebody is actually writing this letter for him. He is the apostle to the Jewish people. He spends most of his time in Jerusalem after Christ has left. We've seen him with many high highs and great explanations of who Jesus Christ is, but we've also seen him stumble along the way. He is a real person writing a real letter to suffering followers of Jesus Christ. He's very different than Paul. Paul, when he writes a book, he makes solid arguments. They are linear. You can follow his logic. Peter's circular. First Peter, he says something, then he goes somewhere else, and he says it again, then he says, you know, goes against. It's not as easy a path to follow. It's interesting to me. Peter actually says this of Paul in 2 Peter 3.16. Paul says of Peter's letters, there's some things in them that are hard to understand. That's Peter. Way more interested in what you do than what you say. And he has written this letter to persecuted believers. And in chapter one, he's reminding them of the great salvation that they have been granted through Jesus Christ. He is saying, in spite of the persecution that you're feeling, don't throw your hope away that this persecution is momentary to remind them that in the end, Jesus wins. And there's this constant call throughout the book for them to stay obedient. That takes us to chapter 2 where we read in verse 1. He tells this persecuted church, put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. And like newborn infants, long for the pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow up into salvation if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. So he's like, listen, if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, if you tasted the grace of of Jesus Christ, if you've experienced the love of God through Jesus Christ, then you should desire to follow him like a newborn baby desires milk. Any parents of newborns here? Okay, so, so you understand the battle that you have when you take a kid home from the hospital that when they want something to eat, they want it now, right? So, so do, you, do you reason with them? No, no, there's no reasoning with them. They're going to let you know because that desire supersedes any reason that you could apply. They're going to desire that like crazy. And, and your goal really as a parent is to try to get off the kid's schedule and get the kid on your schedule, right? Isn't that the battle? And as a father of six, that only usually takes, well, depending on the kid and his temperament, with, for us, it was anywhere from like one month to 25 years. That's all it is. So, <laughs> so just so you know, it could be longer. Um, but you're supposed to pursue this thing with a desire that can't be satiated, that can't be satisfied. And he says in verse four, as you come to him, this is speaking of Jesus, as you come to Jesus, 
a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious. You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house. And so I can kind of imagine what's going on here. Peter is in Jerusalem. He's looking at the city of Jerusalem, probably focused on the temple, and he's looking at this building made of all these stones, and he's writing to the church that is scattered throughout Asia Minor, experiencing persecution, and he says, listen, the Jesus is the cornerstone, he is the foundational stone, and each of us are blocks in this building that God is building as his church. And, and in doing so, you need to understand he's connecting these scattered, persecuted, probably feeling isolated and alone believers throughout Asia Minor back to the greater work of God. It's not a bad analogy for a guy who can't write. And he's saying, listen, the church isn't just the temple. It's made up of all of us. He says, you yourselves like living stones are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices. Again, we don't offer animal sacrifices anymore. That was in the Old Testament, but we're told in the book of Hebrews that we just studied that when Jesus Christ came, he made a sacrifice once and for all. We're told in Romans 12.1, it says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercy of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. So we talk about worship a lot here, but our spiritual worship, this spiritual sacrifice that we're to bring is no longer the blood of ram or bulls, but it's our life. He says you're to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Don't ever think that your sacrifice or your obedience is the thing that saves you. It is your sacrifice of worship that is still only acceptable through the sacrifice that Jesus gave on your behalf. Jesus alone is what makes us acceptable. And then he says in verse 6, For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. And at this building and at the Grand Haven campus, we have a cornerstone. Some of you may have noticed it as you walk into the building. It's not really a cornerstone. It's more of a dedication plaque. And on the plaque at both campuses, there's one verse. It's Psalm 127, verse 1, that says, unless the Lord builds the house, he who builds it labors in vain. And our desire, our prayer for both campuses is that this would be a house that the Lord builds, that his spirit would fill this place. But those aren't real cornerstones. If you think back to Jerusalem and the construction that Peter would have been looking at, the foundational stone or the cornerstone was the most important stone and the builder had to lay it. He had to make sure that it was plumb. He had to make sure that it was laid properly, otherwise the entire building would become impacted. And he's saying that's exactly who we are as a church of Christ. We have this precious cornerstone. And then he says, verse 7, so the honor is for you who believe, but, to those, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builder has rejected has become the cornerstone. He's acknowledging that Jesus, not, not all will choose to follow, not most will choose to follow, and he says, a stumbling, a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word and as they were destined to do. Now, it's interesting, in the verses that I just read, referring to cornerstone or this rock, 
Peter is quoting from the Old Testament, from the prophet Isaiah and from the psalmist David. And in Greek tradition and in Greek religious beliefs and in culture, they believed that the Jewish people were God's people, that Israel was God's nation, that the city of Jerusalem was God's city and the center of Jerusalem was the temple through which God would save the world. That is what the mind, you would believe if you had grown up in Judaism in Jesus' day. But all of a sudden, there's this prophet, untrained, impoverished, coming from Galilee, who is taking these Old Testament prophecies of Isaiah and David, and he's not applying them to the nation of Israel or to Judaism or to the temple, but he's applying them to himself. And it enrages the religious leaders of Jesus' day to the point where they have him killed. But Peter is building on what Jesus had said, saying, I am the true cornerstone. And the church are the people of God who are built upon my foundation. Now, that gets us to verse 9, our text today. Here's the first point set apart. We are a people that are set apart. Hopefully, you're going to see these points right in the text. Verse 9, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. The followers of Jesus Christ, those who have made him the foundation of their lives, the cornerstone of his life, they are now God's people. But it goes on to say that they are a royal priesthood. How how many of you woke up this morning, looked in the mirror and said, man, that's a good looking priest. I, I, I told you in the big idea that God views us very differently than we view ourselves. We don't think about ourselves as priests And there's a really good biblical reason why we don't. Maybe if you grew up in Catholicism, you have a better understanding of priests. But in the Protestant church, we don't really have priests. And Hebrews tells us that the job of the priest was to basically stand as a a representation of the people before God. Hebrews 5.1 says... For every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of man in relation to God, to offer gifts and sacrifices for sin. So the priest stands in the gap between man and God. Now, it's interesting if you were to study history, if you were looking at um, ancient civilizations or ancient cultures, almost any civilization that you can find Throughout all of the annals of history, they had the office, whether they called it this or not, of priest. There is somebody in almost every culture that stands in the gap between man and that culture's idea of deity, be it God, be it a spiritual world, be it God's. And there's something innately in the heart of man that says we struggle on our own to stand before a holy God. So you can go back and study pagan civilizations and you will find that role of priest is prevalent. Somebody that stands in the gap between the culture and God. But the whole story of Hebrews, the whole story of the New Testament is that Jesus is now our high priest. Second Tim, or 1 Timothy 2.5 says there is one God and there is one mediator between God and man, the man Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ for us stands in that gap. We don't make a sacrifice for sin anymore. Jesus paid that once and for all on the cross. There are no priests at harvest. Jesus is our mediator. 
The, the veil's been torn. We all have equal access. There is nothing that keeps us from the presence of a holy God because of the work of our high priest on our behalf, Jesus Christ, on the cross. So when it says that we are a royal priesthood, the question is, how does this impact my Monday? Like, if I'm supposed to be a high priest and stand in the gap between man and God, I don't understand how I do that because Jesus has already fulfilled that role. Well, I want you to think about it a little differently. Though Jesus is our high priest standing in the gap between man and God, representing man to God, the high priest also represented God to man. Am I right? So the people would go to the temple, and if you study the Old Testament and the garments that the high priest wore and the purification, he was a representative of God as well to the people. And this is what we are called to do. And when I say we, I don't mean your pastoral staff. This is the job of the believer. This is your identity station or, or, or question. Here, here, here's what I, or identity statement. You are a high priest. That is your job during the week. Um, if you're a fireman, what do you do during the week? You put out fires, right? It's pretty simple. 11 o'clock. Um, if you're a teacher, what do you do during the week? Teach. Pretty, pretty simple. I'm not tricking you. Okay. What do you call a fireman who doesn't put out fires? What's that? Ineffective. He's not doing his job. So we are called to be priests during the week, not to represent men before God, but to represent God back to men. And if that's not something that we're doing, listen, it's the job description. We're not doing our job. And I know some of you are like, can't we just show up on Sunday and call it a day? Is that not enough? No, you cannot. No, you cannot. Because as followers of Jesus Christ, our job description is clear. We're to be a representative wherever we go of who God is to those that we rub shoulders with, to those who we encounter. So, so hopefully this becomes clear as we go through the text. Because so, so, Okay, so what does it look like to be a representative of God to the people? And this is what I love about Peter, man. It's not hard to figure out where he's going or to come up with action steps. Let's keep reading. He says this. He says in verse 9, you're a chosen race, a royal priesthood. You've been, in essence, set apart a holy nation, a people for his own possession. Okay, so what purpose, what, what are we to do? Look at the next sentence. That you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. So that our purpose, the next thing in your notes, the first one is to proclaim the excellencies of Jesus. You're like, where does this guy come up with this stuff? Right there. It's in the text. We're to proclaim the excellence of Jesus when we leave this place and go out into the world. Now, now I got to tell you something. One of the things that happens at Harvest, if you've attended here for any amount of time, you know this is true. Do we stress the grace and love and mercy of God here? Like, is that kind of a high priority for us to teach? And there would be some that would look at the message that we teach and say, hey, don't get out of balance. You can't just talk all about grace. You got to talk about truth. And you can't just talk about the love of God. You got to talk about the responsibility of men. Let me respond to that. I don't lose one ounce of sleep believing that I've overstated grace here. 
I don't worry about that one iota because I don't believe that there are enough hours in the day, in the year, in the decade, or words in the English language that would allow me to overemphasize, overstress, or overcommunicate the grace of Jesus Christ. I just don't believe that there are. So we continually proclaim the excellencies of him who's called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Look at verse 10. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. So what are the things that we're proclaiming? Well, this idea that he's called us into light, that we now are a people of God, that we have received mercy. And as I proclaim the excellencies of Jesus Christ as I leave this place, there's two audiences that I have to be communicating it to. The first is myself. Here's what I find during the week. Maybe you'll find this unusual if you do pray for me, but maybe you've got the same story. I I talk to myself more than anybody else. Did you guys know that? And and I probably listen to myself more than anyone else. We were getting ready for dinner last night and I came to the table and this will happen occasionally in our house. My wife goes, who are you talking to? I'm like, just myself. She goes, what are you saying? I said, I was practicing my sermon. That's my out. Um, but I was just caught talking to myself. And, and so I was just talking to myself. I was running something through my head. My lips were moving. I, I'm kind of in this constant dialogue with myself, kind of explaining to myself how I perceive the world, what my worldview is. And the reality is I need as your pastor, and I believe that you need every day to be proclaiming to yourself the excellencies of Jesus Christ. That there's more going on in your week than just the struggles, the trials, and the routine. God views you as a high priest. He's putting people in your path. He's giving you opportunities to proclaim the excellencies of you who called you out of darkness into a marvelous light. But you have to be able to communicate that to yourself, that you're on mission, or you're going to miss your opportunities to communicate it to others. And it's interesting, we can communicate in so many different ways. And there used to be the big tent revivals that churches would do and and corner evangelism and all of these different ways. I'm not against any of that. But what I'm encouraging you to specifically this morning is the people that you do life with, your family, your coworkers, they should see something about you because of the grace of Jesus Christ that is different in your day-to-day and you should be looking for opportunities to express that, different, it, that difference. It comes in a lot of different ways. Take a look at this. With your own faith, how heavy was this load you've been carrying? I know you try to handle like a professional, but you can't block all the outside. No, I, I appreciate the question, Chris. You know, ultimately, it's about team. And I'm just trying to do my part for this team, help us win. And, um, you know, quarterback carries weight, that comes with a job. And, uh, you know, like you said, my faith is important to me. It's the foundation of my life. And ultimately, that's where I gain my, my peace and strength. Win or lose today, uh, God's still on the throne, and I take comfort in that. The first. Okay, I, I show you that little clip for this reason. Kirk Cousins has a West Michigan connection. He grew up in Holland. His dad's a pastor in Orlando, used to pastor in Zealand, and was in Chicago for 20-some years as a pastor. So some of you recognize that guy, Kurt Cousins. He's a professional football player. He's quarterback for the Minnesota Vikings, who I don't care about in the least, okay? (laughs) But I have an interest in them because of Kurt Cousins and his testimony. And if you know the story of Kurt Cousins, a few years ago, he signed a contract as an NFL quarterback 
one of the richest contracts ever signed by an NFL quarterback, which is saying something. And yet he tended not to win the big game. But like in big games, his team has tended to lose. So he's carried this weight on his back. Like, are you ever going to win a big game? And if you watched last weekend, his game went into overtime against the New Orleans Saints. The Saints were favored to win. And in overtime, he threw two um, really spectacular passes to carry his team to victory. And in response to that, in the moments right after it, in the defining moment of his career, that was a defining moment that you saw. He did an interview right afterwards, and guess what he does? He deflects. To God be the glory, to God be the glory, to God be the glory. So that was last week's game. As some of you saw last night's game, how'd that go? They're done. Okay, they're out. Um, but I got to believe, based off his consistent testimony, that when he woke up this morning, God's still on the throne, win or lose, right? And see, that's what people need to see. And I know some of you are like, hey, I've left work a lot of time. There's never news crews waiting to interview me. I I get that. But there's people watching. And and whether you know it or not, if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, if you're proclaiming the excellencies of Jesus Christ, people are watching. You have a platform. You're going to see this develop in the next few verses. Here's the second thing. Not only are we to proclaim the excellencies of Jesus, hopefully you see this in verse 11. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. We're we're described in this verse as sojourners and exiles. It's more than just being a foreigner living in a strange land. Actually, verse 1 of 1 Peter, the whole letter begins, Peter addresses his audience to those who are elect exiles. This idea of being an exile, a stranger in the land in which you live, it's the idea that you've been elected. It is an elected position. You won the election in a landslide. God chose you. And God has placed you in a foreign land to live differently, like you're not at home. How many of you um, over the holidays did some traveling and stayed with friends or family? Just raise your hand. Okay, it's always good to get with friends and family. And there's different levels of comfort as you stay in somebody else's home. But you understand that staying in somebody else's home is not like staying in your own home, right? Like I can go to some of my closest family or some of my best friends and they'll be like, oh, you're staying down in the basement, your bedroom's down there and we'll go down there and I've got to immediately think through, okay, how many steps from the bedroom to the bathroom, right? Because like, I got to figure out how that's going to work if I have to get up during the night and then based off how familiar, you got to weigh some things like, can I just go into the fridge and get my own food? Do I have to wear pants? You know, all the things, <laughs> well, instead of pajama bottoms, like, like grow up, right? So, so, You know, how comfortable can I be in this house, but it's never like home? Hey, newsflash, this isn't our home. We're called to live as elect exiles, as strangers and sojourners. What those words mean is you're a resident alien. You're living in a country, but you are not a citizen of that country. And churches struggle to figure out how to strike the balance in that. For some, it's separate. And they say, well, we've got to gather together and we've got to withdraw and we've got to stay away from the world because the world is wicked and um, 
evil friends corrupt good morals and we've got to get some distance and if we live in a neighborhood, that's okay, but we better build a fence because we don't want to be tempted or see what's going on in the yard next door and quite honestly, if we're not careful, we want to keep those people out of our yard, right? And so all of a sudden, at some extremes, you separate. And it's interesting, when you separate, you avoid persecution because you distance yourself. You um, mute that contrast that you would have if you were living like an exact exile in the world. It's, it's a way of self-protection for a church that separates. Other churches assimilate. And what they do is they say, how can we look, be the church, but look like the world to the point that we'll never be persecuted for being different? So they take the Jesus of the Gospels and they reinvent him. They give him a makeover. They try to make him look appealing. They try to make him look cool, look hip. And they take the rough edges of a fence that Peter talks about and they try to remove them and they try to look as the church as much as they can like the world. And when the church tries to do that, they look as goofy as a 55-year-old man in skinny jeans. It just doesn't work. Okay? Jesus doesn't need a makeover. The gospel does not need to be adjusted to fit in our culture. So we're not called to separate, but we're not also called to assimilate. Jesus is saying you are a resident alien in a culture. And here's what that means. You can't protect yourself by pulling away and you can't protect yourself by not standing for anything. As a priest called by God, representing God to the world, you're going to stand in a gap And you're going to see this in a minute in the text where some level of uncomfortable, some level of ridicule, some level of persecution. We can bank on it. We live as resident aliens. Here's a third thing that I want you to see. You need to understand the mission, verse 12. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. My concern for this church is not that we preach grace too much, but that some would hear a very real good message of grace and believe that a holy, righteous God does not demand obedience from his followers. Romans 6, 1 says, shall I continue to sin that grace may abound? May may it never be. And the issue isn't are we overselling grace? The, the, The problem could be that some in only hearing grace would forget about the holiness of God. He he he's he's the lion of Judah. Okay? He's he's a lion, he's an apex predator, he's not the poodle of Persia. Okay, Don't forget that we have a holy God who takes sin seriously. How seriously? The cross. We're called his priests to keep our conduct amongst the Gentiles honorable. So much time could be spent 
taking you back to the purification of what it took for a priest to enter the presence of God. Praise Jesus for doing that and standing in that gap. But we are called to be righteous. We need to maintain an eternal focus. In understanding the mission, we maintain an eternal focus. I talked about this idea of being strangers and aliens, that all of our pleasure, all of our fulfillment, all of our satisfaction is not in the things of this world, and we're not complete or incomplete because of something that happens on Thursday. We have to keep a deeper perspective. There would be some here that in following Jesus, you'll follow him as long as you get what you think that you'll get from following Jesus. For some of you, maybe you're God's comfort. And you say, listen, if God can fix my marriage, if he can straighten out my kids, if he can get me out of a couple jams, I'll follow him. And the reality is our focus is not always just on what he can do to change us, but it is in service to what he does. I just don't think that you're going to consistently be obedient to the things that Jesus has called you to do by white-knuckling yourself to obedience and saying, I'm going to try harder, I'm going to try harder, I'm going to try harder. I think that can work in the seasons when you're feeding addiction and for short seasons, but the reality is if we're going to be what Jesus has called us to be as a church, we have to replace the, pas- the passions that we would normally pursue the passions of the flesh with the passions of Jesus Christ. That, that, that's how you get there. Um, Kristen and I will often go down to Chicago. We do this several times a year. We've got family in Chicago and we'll drive down to Chicago. And I used to go down to Chicago for work. And here's what I know. My car can't even get to Chicago without stopping at exit 26A in Indiana. Because exit 26A, if you've driven that drive, that's the Chesterton exit. And at the Chesterton exit is every food you could desire. There's a Dunkin' Donuts. There's a Wendy's, Frosty. There's a Dairy Queen, Blizzard. Like like everything that I could desire is at that one exit. So my car naturally does the exit loop, goes over and picks one of those restaurants, typically Dunkin' Donuts, okay? So let's assume that I'm driving down there next week. We get to the exit. I get into the right lane. I put on my turn signal and my wife looks at me and goes, ah, you're looking a little chunky after the holidays. Maybe we should pass this time. Blinker comes off. I'll go straight, okay? But I'm not happy about it. Like, I, I can white-knuckle it through that. I'm not, I'm not happy that I'm not getting my donut. But the reality is, that will keep me obedient in that moment. Now, if we're headed to Chicago, and she says, hey, we might not want to stop at Dunkin' Donuts right now because we're going to have a big dinner tonight. We're going to the Grand Lux, and we're going to have a big dinner, and for dessert, we're going to order the beignets, which is the best thing in the whole world. Like, I'm like, for sure. Back in the left lane. Passing Dunkin' Donuts, not regretting that temptation at all because I've replaced it with something that for me is a greater joy. Do you understand what I'm trying to illustrate? See, that's what we're called. We've got to gain eternal perspective and begin to desire the things that God has called us for. And then the last thing, expect some pushback in our mission. I find it interesting in verse 12, there's this little contrast within the text 
Verse 12 says, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, if or when, when, 100%, it's going to happen. Like, not if, when they speak against you as evildoers. So you're telling me when I live honorably, I'm going to be persecuted for it. They're going to say that I'm an evildoer. Absolutely, it's guaranteed. It's not if, it's when. So when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Okay, so you're telling me that if I uh, do my job, if I ask as a high priest, a representative of God to the people that I brush with, I can guarantee myself persecution and they're gonna call me an evildoers. Why would I do that? Because some may see the gospel and glorify God. And see, at the end of the day, here's the question that we've all got to ask ourselves. Is it worth it? Is it worth it to live differently in a culture if that's going to mean that we pay some price? One of the things that I try to remind my staff is what I would call the math of Matthew 13. And and let me explain what that means. In, In Matthew 13, Jesus gives his first parable. And in that first parable, he tells the story of four soils that when the gospel is proclaimed, it falls on one of four soils. It either falls on a rocky road or amongst thorns or or on a road or rocks or thorns. But sometimes it falls on good soils. But the problem is in the analogy, in the parable that Jesus tells, only one in four of those seeds really take root and grow. That's it. It's one in four. Is it worth it? for one in four? Like, like that's the question that we have to ask our biblical counselors. That's the question we have to ask our pastors. If there's 3,000 people attending Harvest every week, that means maybe only 750 will ever grow. And to get there, you got to go through the agony of seeing people receive the gospel but then drift away because of, well, what the text says, persecution, the deceitfulness of riches, the pleasures of this world. And the question we've got to ask ourselves is, is it worth the persecution so that some may see and rejoice and proclaim with us the mercies of God? And I'm telling you what, my answer to that is absolutely. One of the joys that I have when I come in on a, week, or on a weekday and we have a staff meeting is I can look around at our staff. And some of you may not know this, but I can look at several members of our staff. I can look at uh, Marty Gravelin one of our small group pastors, when I met Marty Gavlin, he wasn't saved. They were coming in for counseling. They were going through a rough season. And not only can I tell you about Marty Gravelin, I can tell you about his wife and I can tell you about his kids and I can tell you about his parents and what God has done. Nate. When I met Nate, Nate wasn't saved. Have you heard this guy preach? God's gifted Nate. But when he came here, He wasn't saved. He was trying to piece his life back together after military service. And Danny Turner's the same way. And I'm I'm forgetting names. Carlos and Heather Regalius. We've got staff members who have now gone into full-time ministry from the point where they came here, they weren't saved. And now we see them producing fruit and multiplying. And is it worth it? Absolutely. Because it's only when you're willing to live in the culture has a contrast to their values that you stand as a light and God uses you to bring transformation. And I don't know of a 
greater joy in the world. I don't need you here 20 hours a week, I promise. I need us to be the church out there. Chosen people, a holy, a royal priesthood, a people of his own possessions to proclaim the excellencies of Jesus Christ, to stand in the gap, to be a representative and to let our values look different than our neighbors. That's the church during the week. Let's pray we're up to our job description. Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you for this text. I thank you that you took a simple fisherman to proclaim incredibly profound truth and we just read what he wrote and say, you spoke through this man, praise God. And Father, at the end of the day, may that be the prayer of all of our lives that you took broken vessels and you made us into something that you were to use for your glory and you will deserve all the praise. Father, I thank you for the clarity of this passage and what you've called us to be. Father, give us the faith, the faith to live up to what you've called us. And Father, I can't even preach this message without ending by thanking you for standing in the gap between us and a holy God. Father, we thank you for the cross. We thank you for your love. We praise you for your grace. May we never get tired of thanking you for those things. It's in your name we pray. Amen.